Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. I just want to welcome those of you watching live and those of you who will be watching this later. Tonight we'll be looking at chapters 3 through 5 of Genesis, really concentrating on chapters 3 and 4 and uh, looking at the story for all of God's people. If you're a person of faith, I hope this will open your eyes to uh, the depth of the scriptures that you already trust. And if you're a skeptic, seeing what this whole Bible thing is about, I pray that this will open your curiosity to this story that's captured the whole world and turned it upside down time after time. And if you're just listening because you're anxious or lonely, um, I pray that uh, the story of Genesis will show you the one who created all things, wants to love you and be loved by you, and I hope that brings you peace. Uh, a couple of things that I'd like for you to know about, fivecoffeesinabook.com. Go to that website. I'll leave a link once this is over. Um, uh, check that out. That might be something that you can do with uh, the people that you are uh, self-isolating with, or it might be something that you can do over the phone or FaceTime or Skype or something with uh, some other people. Uh, also, on my blog, skidmore.substack.com, it's just a blog I've been putting together of some little short stories that are kind of inspired by some writing exercises that I'm doing. They're not super polished. They're Most of them are pretty short. Some of them are a little longer, but um, I just thought you might enjoy them. They're there for free to read. You can get a free subscription and get them into your email uh, box. So if you like the way that we're going through Genesis, you might like some of the storytelling that is in those stories as well. And uh, also, I've written books that are published, skidmorep.com slash books, and you can get uh, ebook and paperback through Amazon or Apple Books. And uh, I've got three short stories and a novel. So we're in Genesis chapters three, four, and five. Um, I'm probably not going to read um, all of it because that takes so much time. Um, but let me address that real quick. Why am I going through these giant chunks of text. Like, why aren't we going through a paragraph at a time? That's kind of how I did things growing up in Sunday school is we'd read, you know, a paragraph or two or a single story. We kind of chew that over and talk about it. And there's great value in that. In fact, when I have small group studies, that's what we do. We take a little story or we take a paragraph, a couple of verses, a single Psalm, something like that. And we read it and then we ask, you know, what does this say about God? And what does this say about, you know, the nature of human nature? And, um, how are we going to obey it? You know, and those are some of the questions that we ask when we look at a little piece of text like that. And there's great, great value in that, great transformative value in discussing those kinds of things with other people. I think 
uh, there are two ways in which you can take your interaction with Scripture to the next level. If you want to really take your interaction with Scripture to the next level, the two top ways that you can do that, one is to read it out loud with somebody else. That's something we almost never do anymore. So someone might stand up and read it to a group of people, like a scripture reading at church or maybe, you know, reading the passage in a class. But uh, lots of times I'll see people doing Bible studies at the coffee shop and they're by themselves. Occasionally I'll see a group of three or four people and they're kind of going around and kind of reading scripture. Uh, so it's not very common that I see that, a small group reading the Bible out loud to each other. And... Um, so that's the number one thing that you can do. Read scripture out loud to somebody else with somebody else. The second thing you can do to really up your game and understanding and interacting with scripture is to obey it. And it sounds like such a rudimentary thing, but how many times do we read something, argue about what it says or doesn't say, develop some robust theology around it, um, you know, come up with all kinds of rules and things around it, judge other people because of it. And yet we don't do the one thing that we're supposed to do with it, which is obey it. And so read it out loud with somebody else. And then, uh, the two of you go away obeying. Uh, that would be the greatest way to interact with it. So coming back to why I cover such wide swaths of text instead of these little bite-sized things that we can actually read and obey very easily, it's because <clears throat> because we've spent so much time breaking things down into their smaller parts and dissecting them, I think we lose sight of the larger story that's happening. And I think many of us don't even really conceive of Genesis as a single book. We conceive of it as all the stories of Genesis just kind of like slotted in next to each other and kind of put under the under the Genesis umbrella rather than, no, this is the story of Genesis. And all of these stories here, they're little episodes in a single story that's being told, which is really just act one of the Torah, which is really just act one of all of scripture. So what is the story here? We need to be able to sort of step back. Um, when, when I learned to appreciate this, uh, is thanks to my, to my mother, actually, who's downstairs listening right now. And it was one Christmas. Uh, all of us received a, a Christmas gift that looked suspiciously similar. So we all knew we got the same thing, whatever it was. And it appeared to be a book. And before I opened it, she said, we're going to do this together this year. And I was like, I am not making any commitments to anything until I open this and see what it is. Because I don't know what I'm agreeing to. You know, is this clown college? Is this, you know, a weight loss program? Like, oh, I don't know what this is. So, <clears throat> but she kind of gave me the mom look, right? And that's, I was in, um, well, no, I was an adult. I was a, I was in college at the time or out of college, I guess. But um, she's still my mom. So I, I said, okay, yes, ma'am. And so I agreed, opened it, and it was read the Bible in 90 days. Well, then I was like, okay, I want to do that. This is a very noble thing to try and do. But 90 days, you know, I'd read the whole Bible from, from cover to cover, but it didn't take 90 days. It took a long time. And so I thought, okay, all right, well, let's just do it. And so she and I both dove in right at the beginning of January and it went all the way January, February, March. And by the end of March, uh, even if we'd gotten a little behind, we were able to catch up and, and we pretty much finished right at the end of March or beginning of April. And so I don't know if it was exactly 90 days, but it was it was right in there. And in order to do that, by the way, you've got to read Scripture. I mean, it's 45 minutes to an hour a day. Day one is Genesis 1 through 10. I mean, it's it's not fooling around. Uh, what I learned by doing that is I didn't have time to, like, stop and chew anything, really. You know, I didn't have time to stop and, like, stare out the window. With a, like, I was trying to, you know, work. I was teaching at the time and um, 
I had uh, lots of other business and things to take care of. And so and if I was going to do this every day, I had to sit down and read the whole thing and sort of just ingest it in one giant meal. And what I learned by doing that was by the time I got to Chronicles, which often was just so forgettable to me because I didn't know who these people were or what was going on. I saw how it was pointing back to things I just read a few days ago. Whereas before when I'd read it, it was pointing back to things I'd read months ago and had forgotten. Now there's things I just read a couple days ago. Uh, and so I was like, oh, I know who this is now. And I, I see where this is happening. And I, I understand the story that's being told here. And then by the time I got to the New Testament, I saw how it was pointing back to all these Old Testament prophecies that I just read you know, a few weeks before. And so by reading it in that very time-compressed fashion, I began to understand and see, oh, wow, here's the, here's the big story that's going on here. So that's one reason why I go through these wide swaths of text is because when you can back out and see what the total story is, it tells you something that you need to understand about God and it helps you interpret the little smaller bites when you do finally dig in and take a verse at a time and kind of decide, okay, how am I going to obey the idea right here in this passage? So you take that for what it's worth. I'm not going to take the time to, to read every word of Genesis uh, 3, 4, and 5 tonight, just for time's sake, um, but you should do it. And again, I recommend um, the translation that I have here, which is Robert Alters, The Five Books of Moses, or you can get his entire uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, as I said, he's, he's done the entire um, Old Testament now. So let's just review real quick the first two videos. Part one was uh, Genesis 1, creation. Said a lot of maybe controversial things about creation. I'm not trying to rock anybody's beliefs or understanding or scientific understanding or religious understanding. Uh, I'm just trying to point out what the scripture does say and what it doesn't say. And that we don't need to put anything there that it isn't saying, and that we don't need to demand anything of it that it that it isn't supplying, and that we don't need to hold it to any standard that it is obviously not trying to achieve, right? So we don't need to try and force a scientific lens on it when that's obviously not its main goal. I think it has a lot of great science in it, actually, um, when you put it in the context of what its initial purpose is, what its initial goal is. Its initial goal is to say, God did it, God did it, God did it. Every day, seven times, God did it, God did it, God did it. And when God does something, it's good. He says it, it happens, and it's good. That's the purpose of the creation story in Genesis 1, right? So um, we see that God creates order from chaos, and he fills it with abundance. This is um, a theme we see all the way in the Gospel of of John. You know, Jesus says, life, uh, G- um that he came to, to to give us life and to give it give us life to the full, right? To give us that abundance. I create I came to create order from your chaos and give you abundance is essentially what he's saying, which just harkens back to these Genesis themes. Only two things in Genesis one not declared good. That's the heavens, so that they can kind of stop people from worshiping the created and have them worship the creator instead. But the other thing not declared good is mankind. And remember, good is not necessarily a moral uh, term like good versus evil. It just means, uh, fulfilling its purpose, complete and, and, fil- and fulfilling its purpose. And mankind is not complete in fulfilling its purpose yet because it remains to be seen. Right. And so that's now the rest of the story of the Bible is what's going to happen with man and his relationship with uh, himself, his relationship with the other humans, and his most importantly, the relationship with the God that made him. So that gets us to Genesis 3, and uh, I will read just a section of this real quick and, and make some comments. 
So, um, starting just verse one. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so remember there was the human and then the human had his side removed. And now we have the human and the woman. We assume that the human is a man. Uh, Adam um, is the Hebrew word Adam, which can mean human or it can mean man. It could also be the name Adam. So, uh, so we have the, the, the man and the woman, the human and the woman. So God says to the, or sorry, the, the serpent says to the woman, though God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the garden's trees, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not be doomed to die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be as God's yourselves, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and that it was lust to the eyes and the tree was lovely to look at. And she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave it to her man and he ate and the eyes of the two were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. So, um, a couple of interesting things here. Uh, if I recall correctly from chapter two, God says, you shall not eat of this tree for, remember he said, uh, eating, you eat of it, dying, you'll die, right? If you eat of it, you're doomed to die. And then he didn't say anything about touching it. Somehow Eve here, we know that she will be called Eve later. The woman has added this thing about not touching it. Now, maybe something has transpired between chapters two and chapter three, where God has said something of that. But actually, when God gives the command not to eat of the tree, he gives it to the human. The woman is not present, or at least the woman has not yet been removed from the man. So the woman, as she is now, is she present when God gives that command? It doesn't appear that she is. God gives it to the human, the man, to Adam. So somewhere, something has been added to this command. Perhaps God added it, but we don't have any record of God adding it. We see Eve sort of maybe possibly adding things on her own, or maybe she's adding something in that Adam has told her, since obviously he's the one that would have to relate this information to her, um, unless she's heard it from God herself. A lot of unknowns here, but we just see there's been a little bit of an evolution in the command. Okay, so Serpent takes advantage of that and says, ah, you're not going to die, right? Yeah, he, he, there's a little bit of truth there, and he spins that and just puts a question, you know, w- will you really, right? And uh, here's why. Here's why he said this. It's because he knows you'll become like him. And that gets at the central point of the idea of sin in these chapters that follow, chapters three and four in particular, is that sin is always trying to play God. It's always trying to be like God. That's what it's about. So then you see all the temptation that the woman has here, right? You see the way that she's tempted. She's tempted with the lust of the flesh, right? Which, uh, if you think about the seven deadly sins, that would be like gluttony, uh, lust, and sloth, right? She's lusting after the tree. She wants to eat it, right? And she's willing to take what's right there rather than work, go somewhere else and work for something that she's supposed to have. Uh, she's got the lust of the eyes. She's uh, envious of God's knowledge of good and evil and envious of God's status. And um, she's greedy. She wants to have, she could have anything that she wants, but she wants this only because she's been told she can't have it, you know. And then you have the lust of the ego, just the the wrath and the pride, these these kind of lust of the ego. It's really all three of these big, um, these big types of sins, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the ego, they're all covered right here in this one instance. 
By the way, these are also the three ways that Jesus is tempted in the desert later on in the New Testament, for those of you that are uh, Bible believers. You're aware that Jesus is is tempted in Luke 4 and, and other places in the Gospels. And uh, it's the same kind of things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the ego. So she has the temptation, and then what happens? She turns to the man. What does that um, suggest to us? <laughs> the man's been there the entire time. And what has he done? Nothing. He's a do-nothing. He's just standing there, right? So, um, so they eat of it together. As soon as they do, they realize what? That they're naked. So they make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves and they, and they, they, uh, as we pick up here, we see that they go hide, uh, moving on somewhere between verse seven and eight. Uh, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden in the evening breeze and the human and his woman hid from the Lord God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the human and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard your sound in the garden, and I was afraid, for I was naked, and I hid. And he said, this is God, God said, who told you that you were naked? From the tree I commanded you not to eat, have you eaten? And the human said, the woman whom, whom you gave by me, uh, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And you can see in the way Alter's translated to hear it, it's mimicking the Hebrew. It's it's almost a stuttering. You see Adam kind of tripping over himself to figure out who to blame, which he initially blames the woman, but then he remembers, wait a minute, you gave me this one. This is your fault, God. He blames God. And um, then she, you know, she gave it to from gave it to me from the tree, and then uh, yeah, 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 I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, well, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate it. The devil made me do it. Satan tricked me. The serpent beguiled me. That's, and, and yeah, I ate it. And the Lord God said to the serpent, okay, because you have done this, and then he casts these curses, curses, which I won't take the time to read. You can go and read them on your own. But he curses the serpent to wallow on his belly the rest of his life. He um, gives a curse to the woman saying that he'll uh, curse the process of childbirth. And he gives a curse to the man saying that his work will have weeds and toil in it. He'll work by the sweat of his brow. And so what is it that gets cursed? The serpent? Now the serpent gets cursed. Okay. But what about the man and the woman? Are, are they cursed? The man and the woman are not cursed. The process of childbirth, that's cursed. You'll have joy now, but only through pain. And the man, he's not cursed. It's his work that is cursed, which we remember the man was put in charge of the garden, was put in charge of all the animals by God upon his creation before a woman even shows up. So work is not bad. Work is not a curse. Work is not an evil thing. But the work becomes cursed in this instance so that now it's done by the sweat of the brow. And now that there'll be weeds amongst all of the harvest. So woman's not cursed. The process of childbirth is cursed. And the man is not cursed, but the ground is cursed. His work is cursed. Very important difference to consider. We human beings, we're not, we're not cursed, but there are things about life that are cursed now because of sin. Okay. So now we go on into uh, chapter four. And this is the story of Cain and Abel, the children of um, the, the human and the woman who here in chapter four, verse one is called Eve, finally. 
And, um, and the human knew Eve, his, this is chapter four, verse one, and the human knew Eve, his woman, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have got me a man with the Lord. I assume that means I've had a male child, but I don't know. Maybe she was talking about Adam. Um, which by the way, one of the things that we looked at was as soon as woman appears, first thing the man does is sing a love song to her. Any of the men watching, did you sing a love song to your wife, you know, after the broadcast last night? I certainly hope so. Um, so we got Cain, we got Abel now is born. He's the second born Abel is. And, um, so going on to, uh, right around verse three, and it happened in the course of time that Cain brought from the fruit of the soil, an offering of, to the Lord and Abel too had brought from the choice firstlings of his flock. And the Lord regarded Abel and his offering, but he did not regard Cain. Okay. So why did the Lord not regard Cain's offering, but did regard Abel's offering? Um, some possible answers here. One is God is God and he can regard what he wants to and disregard what he wants to. It's God's prerogative. That's part of it. Okay. But if we're to look at the rest of scripture, side note, to develop a really strong, robust theology, it must work all throughout scripture. Okay. So God does some things for a while and he does other things for a while. God made, you know, want to do something and then change his mind. Sometimes it says in the scriptures, um, but God's nature does not change. Who God is does not change. So what God likes and appreciates, what God wants, that's not going to change. So we do see later on when you get into the Torah and there's organized worship happening that there are um, first fruits of the harvest that are brought as wave offerings, waved before the Lord, right? So it's not that God doesn't want um, things from the soil as an offering. It's not that he prefers the the flock offerings over the soil offerings. Although that will be a theme that we'll see all throughout Genesis is um, the, um, the agriculturalist versus the cattle farmer, the livestock guy. Um, the, the farmer versus the shepherd. We'll see that constantly throughout, um, Genesis. And that is kind of getting set up here. But what we don't see is throughout the rest of scripture is that God has a problem with, um, an offering from the soil. In fact, he, he requires it in, in Leviticus under certain circumstances. So look at very care again, look very carefully at the language that is used here. Cain brought from the fruit of the soil an offering to the Lord, indefinite pronoun. And Abel, too, had brought from the choice, the choice firstlings of his flock. So Cain went out and found some stuff and made an offering. Abel, the choice firstlings, right? So that's what God wants, is the best and the first. When we tithe, when we give, God wants the best and the first. He wants the first 10%, not the leftover 10%, right? When he's, he wants the, 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 the gifts to come from the first, not from the leftovers. And because it's about trust, God doesn't need your money, right? The church might can use your money, but God doesn't need your money. What he wants is your trust. And so when you take the best and the first and you give it to God, you're saying, I trust you, Lord, that I can, that I can deal with the rest of this. And so I'm going to give you this to do with as you please. Doesn't appear that Cain did that. 
Cain uh, just went and got things from the soil. And, you know, it doesn't even specifically say it was stuff that he made or tended to. He just kind of walked around and found some stuff, possibly. Another thing that's interesting to point out here is that this isn't a story about Abel who brought an offering to the Lord and Cain who did nothing. Cain brought an offering to the Lord. These are about two people trying to worship the Lord. This is not about a saved person and a lost person. This is not about a good person and a bad person. This is about two people trying to worship the Lord. One is seeking what the Lord wants, and the other is seeking his own desires. And we'll see more of that as we go on. Um, so uh, he did not regard Cain in his offering, and Cain was very incensed, angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you incensed? And why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap, sin crouches, and for you is its longing. But you will rule over it. That's not a statement of what's going to happen in the future. If you know the story, you know that. That is a a kind of a command. You can do this. You have the ability to rule over this. And it's interesting. Again, he says, whether you offer well or whether you don't, Sin's waiting at the door for you. So he could just as easily have said this to Abel, right? But Cain is incensed. His face has fallen. Next, and Cain said, okay, remember last lesson I said, be, be, pay attention to somebody's first words, pay attention to their first actions, and in dialogue scenes, pay attention when someone says something, what is the next thing that happened? Is it a response? Is it an action of some kind? Or is it the same person speaking again, indicating that there was no response from the other person? So here you have God speaking to Cain. Cain does not respond to God. He doesn't, he doesn't even speak to God. He turns right to his brother and he says, let us go out to the field. Mm-hmm. What you doing, Cain? And when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? It's not the first time we've heard that this evening. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. Where did Cain get his offering from? The soil. And now where has his sin caused poison? The soil. You see the Yes, I believe these things all actually happened, but you see the masterful storytelling that is happening here with the language that's being used? It's very incredible. And so, God says, cursed shall you be by the soil that gaped with its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. What a fantastic image of the, the ground, the maw of the ground just opening up and Abel's blood pouring into it. If you till the soil, it will no longer give you its strength. A restless wanderer shall you be on the earth. That's Cain's punishment. A restless wanderer shall you be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, now Cain responds, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Now that you have driven me this day from the soil, and I must hide from your presence, I shall be a restless wanderer on the earth, and and whoever finds me will kill me. So do you see, again, what Cain has done? In the same way that Eve has kind of added things to the command, Cain has now added things 
to the punishment. God didn't say that he would be murdered, but now Cain fears that he will be murdered. He's added that to the punishment. So when that's the thing about sin is it's us trying to play God. It's us trying to put ourselves in God's place and make decisions for him, thinking we know better. And so if we make commands where God doesn't make commands, then we are playing God. And if we make punishments for ourselves where God doesn't make punishment, we're also playing God. And that's what Cain's doing here. He's added to God's punishment where God didn't say. Even so, um, the Lord says that um, there will be vengeance on anyone who kills Cain. And Cain goes off and dwells and knows his wife. Where does she come from? I don't know. If somebody asks you that, they want to track down your, you know, how right the Bible is or what sense it makes and all that kind of stuff. And they bring, where did Cain's wife come from? That's a real popular one that people like to throw out there. Where did Cain's wife come from? Hey, man, just tell them you don't know. Because guess what? You don't. People have been arguing. There's lots of good explanations. If you want to give the good explanations, that's fine. But I bet you'll win a lot more friends if you just tell them the truth and say, hey, man, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll show you, you know, some of the things that I've read, and these are some pretty good explanations, but the bottom line is, man, I don't know. I wasn't there. People ask me about creation. Do you believe the world was created in six days, or do you believe it was created in 14 billion years? Or, you know, hey, I wasn't there. I don't know. You know, I just, I trust the Bible, and I trust the, the things that it's telling me are true, and I really rely on those truths. There's a little bit of a difference they're very related. There's a little bit of a difference in truth and facts. Okay. So when uh, I was in grade school and mom would yell down the hallway, are you, you know, are your feet on the floor yet? Meaning what she wants to know is, are you up moving around doing things? Okay. Well, I love that she phrased the question that way because that allowed me to slide my legs out of the bed, put my feet on the floor and say, yes. And I'm not lying because she asked my feet are on the floor. And the time that I answered, yes, my feet are on the floor. And as soon as I answered, I slipped right back in the bed. And I fell right back asleep. Happened nearly every morning for most of my grade school. All right. Now, I was being factual. But I wasn't being honest. Right? I wasn't being truthful. Right. There was a truth there that that uh, ascended above the facts. Right. So that's kind of the thing that you see happening in Genesis. Hey, is all of this factual? I, I believe that it is. I believe Adam was a historical person. I believe Eve was a historical person. I believe the events described here are historical events. I've already gone into great detail about how I believe the song of Genesis one describes in very specific ways things that we really can see as are true factually in science. But I don't believe that facts is the initial thing that these stories in Genesis is trying are trying to communicate, particularly in these early chapters. I do believe that truth is what they're trying to communicate. So I do believe they're factual, but more than that, I believe that they are true, right? And so who was Cain's wife? I don't know, but I believe that he had one. And I believe that from them, a lot of people came and that's going to be more important later on. So I'm not going to read all these names here at the end of uh, chapter four, but we start to see the lineage of Cain. And then we see, after all that's over, uh, Adam knows his wife again. They have another son, Seth. Abel's dead. Cain has left. He's essentially dead in the eyes of God and Adam and Eve, sort of creating his own civilization over there. 
And so Adam and Eve now have Seth. And from Seth, we get uh, Genesis chapter 5, which I, I don't think I'll read any of tonight. And that is the lineage of Adam. Now, the uh, lineages play three very important roles in Genesis. Lineages, which we are quick to skip over and not read like I'm doing tonight, and uh, disregard. But they play three very important roles in Genesis. The first is uh, their bookends, their act breaks. They're letting you know this part of the story is now done and we're moving to a new part of the story. So you'll notice in chapter five, the lineage of Adam starts with Adam and ends with Noah. So what happens next? Well, it's the story of Noah, right? It's a new sort of chapter in humanity. So what Genesis is letting us know is that with the lineage of Cain and now the lineage of Adam and Seth, the story of the creation of the world and the creation of man, okay, that that episode is done. Now we're moving on to the story of Noah. So they are act breaks, okay? That is the first thing. The second role that they play in Genesis is they are lineages. And that sounds very rudimentary, but they are what they are. I mean, they are a catalog of um, children of sons and uh, people who historically lived, I do believe, and some details about them. And so we should not ignore them because here's information. So you, you can look at it kind of like the liner notes on a on an album or the credits of a movie. I always stay and watch the credits in part because a lot of my friends are in the credits these days because they've been working in the film industry and now their their names are appearing in the credits in some on some major films. And I like to see my friends work and I like to see them get the credit for their work. Or if you like an album, you might look at the liner notes and see who made it and what the story was behind it and those kinds of things. So however you want to think about it, uh, these people, they lived, these things happened, and the Bible wouldn't waste space telling you things unless it felt like it was important for you to know. So they're act breaks, they are lineages, and furthermore, they are story. So you will see story play out within these. And again, if you go in your own time and read the end of chapter four and through chapter five, you'll see places where it sort of breaks from the lineage and tells a little story. And that is cueing you in to something that you need to know, some things that maybe we'll discuss uh, a little more in the next video. So after Adam and Eve's sin, we get Cain's sin. So chapters three and four are really about um, sin. So first couple chapters, God creates this very good thing, and now sin comes along and ruins everything and creates all this division. So um, look at all the sin that happens with Cain's sin. So there's possibly some selfishness in the mediocre sacrifice. There's some jealousy. Uh, he doesn't answer God, so there's some ignoring that's happening there. He doesn't heed his advice, so there's disobedience there. Uh, doesn't heed his uh, warnings or his wisdom, so there's foolishness happening. Uh, he ignores temptation's power. He's lying to his brother. He's angry. Uh, he murders. Uh, then he lies to God about it and tries to cover it up. And uh, the consequence of all that, God tells him he'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Um, it reminds me of Leviticus chapter 26, lists some curses and the consequences of disobedience to all the law things that have been sort of stated thus far. And one of the things that it says there in Leviticus 26 is, you will flee though no one pursues you. 
And so, you know, you ever done something wrong to somebody and you know that you're in the wrong and it really hurt the relationship, damaged the relationship, perhaps irreparably. What happens? You can't eat. Your stomach's upset. You can't sleep. You toss and turn. You get up. You pace. You get in the car. You drive around restless, wandering. Remember how Genesis began on the seventh day? God rested when things were very good. There is rest. And when there is sin, there is restlessness. The rest is gone. Right? And uh, so that just really reminds me of uh, Leviticus 26. You'll flee though no one pursues you. So here's Cain running off, fearing murder, when so far there's only one murderer on the planet. And it's you, Cain. Um, another phrase that we come across here is... Um, Naked and unashamed. This was at the end of Genesis 2, which we talked about a little bit in the last video. Naked and unashamed. Then they realize they're naked and they sow fig leaves and, and they and then they hide from God when they hear him coming. That's what happens after the fall, after the sin. Louis Grizzard had this um, very helpful understanding for people that are not from the South in understanding the difference between naked and naked as we like to say in Tennessee. He, he said, if you are naked, that means you ain't got no clothes on. And if you're naked, that means you ain't got no clothes on and you're up to something. So we see that delineation kind of happening here. They were naked and unashamed, but now they're naked and they hid. Things are different in the world now. Right? They were naked, now they're, now they're naked and they hid. The world, there's a lot of sin in the world. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. There's a lot of division in the world. There's a lot of blaming in the world. There's a lot of selfishness in the world. Just in the last week, we've seen uh, the triumph of human compassion and love and relationship and self-sacrifice and hard work. And we have also seen selfishness and um, blaming and anger and name-calling. And um, all those things sort of all coexist in this world. There's just lots of sin and division. And there's lots of nakedness, right? There's lots of um, people are up to something and they're hiding. They're trying to hide things. Imagine being able to stand before God and everybody with all of your choices laid bare. Imagine that. Does that terrify you? It terrifies me a little bit. It reminds me of John chapter 4. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Scripture, forgive me for bringing other Scriptures into this, but it's just such a great story. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman and to kind of show her that he's someone who might know more things than she might expect, he tells her some very personal things about her life, some things that are probably, some of which are causing her great shame for one reason or another. And when he volunteers that he knows these things, 
she's amazed and she asks him some religious questions. Upon realizing that, that he's the Messiah, that this is the savior of the world, she runs back into town, the town that has really ostracized her. She runs back into town and she gets everyone's attention, whereas before she was avoiding everybody. And it's interesting what she says to them. She doesn't say, Here, here's a man that says he's the Messiah. Let's go check out his claims. She doesn't say, this man did fantastic miracles because he does none. She doesn't even say, this man knew things he couldn't possibly know, which he, he does, but that's not what she says. She says, come meet a man who knew everything I ever did. Now, imagine meeting someone who knows everything you ever did. I, I got to confess, I'd probably be like Cain and be like, uh, you know, I got a rock around here. Get, get, get rid of this guy. Meet someone who knew everything that you ever did and to have joy about that fact. And that, to me, really sums up who God is, who Jesus is, and what our response to him really can be. Imagine being able to stand before God and everybody with all your choices laid bare and to know that you're still loved and that you can still love others and that you can be unashamed, not because of who you are, but because of who God is. So in Christ, we can do this and we can do it um, without shame or fear because he has made us good. When it remains to be seen, if mankind is going to be good, Christ can come in and say, I will make you good. Uh, in uh, the novel that I did back in December called God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, in the opening pages, there's a quote from uh, Colossians chapter one. <clears throat> and it's just a snippet, but I'll be reading a larger portion of that here. It's a little section of scripture that I've been thinking, thinking over a lot over the past year as I've worked on the book. And also included in the book is a homily by John Chrysostom, who I've really uh, come to love his sermons. He's an old, uh, like a third or fourth century early church father. And we somehow still have copies of almost all of his homilies that he gave as a preacher. And some of them, oh, they'll just uh, knock you out of your chair and leave you reeling for a week as you just think about uh, some of the, the ideas that he has in them. And they're all just coming right out of scripture. They're really great. Uh, I have a lot to learn from him. But um, so you can look up his homily on Colossians 1, 18 through 22. Here's what Colossians 1, verses 18 through 22. This is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, reminding them of who Jesus is. It says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's the lesson of Genesis 1, right? That God is over everything. God's first in everything. That's the lesson of Cain and Abel. God wants the first of everything, right? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's in Christ, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile everything to himself. God is going to reconcile everything to himself in Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. In other words, to present you naked and unashamed 
into his rest. In Christ, we can rest. That's what Christ did for us. So the cosmos, the universe, the world was created, and then there was rest. That rest was disturbed by sin, and Christ is coming back to reclaim what's been lost, to reclaim a sense of rest. Where do we find that? In our relationship and our love for God and his love for us. So I'll leave you with this. This is from the book of Hebrews, which has a lot to say about God's rest. This is from chapter 3 and verse 13. But encourage each other every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin waits at the tent flap, but you will rule over it, and you will find rest in Christ. So I hope today has been encouraging for you, and I hope that you'll leave here and encourage someone else. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.